Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I have a guest I'm very excited to talk to. His name is Jim Thune. Jim is a three-time U.S. blind chess champion, among other things. So, Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Um, I expect we're going to be doing lots of talking back and forth because I know both of us have been accused uh, by people in our lives of being talkative individuals. <laughs> so I think it'll make it'll make for a good conversation. Yeah. Um, so I was hoping maybe we could just kick it off, um, you know, introduce you as a, a blind chess champion. But maybe you could just tell the, you know, the initial story of how you lost your eyesight and also how that affected uh, your, your family and if they had any experience with that before. Sure. Um, I'm 70. I've, I've been blind actually for uh, 65 of those years. Um, I was born, uh, it wasn't discovered immediately, but about six months after I was born, it discovered that I had uh, the retinoblastoma tumor uh, on not just one, but both optic nerves. The uh, I think it was the left eye activated um, shortly before my second birthday, uh, lost that eye. And at that time, and this would be back in 1952, 53 time frame, the uh, conventional wisdom was that if I made it past age six without the tumor uh, activating, that odds were fairly good that, that uh, it would go away atrophy and basically disappear. Um, I made it almost to my fifth birthday. So didn't miss by much, but, uh, you know, kids are resilient and my feeling is now and has always been that if there was a, a good time to lose my vision, uh, I picked the best. Um, I had, uh, nearly five years of vision, very good vision in one eye for, for most of those years. Um, and I'm one of those who can remember things actually dating back to, uh, previous to my second birthday. Um, I have a very clear memory of a Christmas, the, uh, Christmas tree, the decorations. Um, one of the boxes under the tree was a box of little, uh, I don't know if they were called match cars back then, but that's generally what they're referred to now. And our puppy puddles, was a little, uh, kind of black, gray and white spotted creature had um, <clears throat> bestowed uh, his opinion on my box of, of match cards. <laughs> that's, that's, a nice way to, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, but but um, how, did it affect, how did it affect me? How did it affect my family? Well, I would have to say. You had a family that, member that had had some experience with this like in our, we, when we talked a few weeks back i think that you had mentioned something along those lines but i yeah. maybe i'm wrong no you're you're quite right um the retinoblastoma had been uh nobody had been aware of it uh prior to my mother's mother she wound up having it in one eye lost one eye to it and, and my mother actually lost one eye to it um the 
other part of it was that um, she had one sibling, uh, her youngest youngest brother. Uh, she was the second oldest of seven kids. Her youngest brother actually lost both eyes to retinoblastoma, and her youngest sister was born premature and uh, suffered the uh, RLF, retrolental fibroplasia, I think it's called, uh, too much oxygen in the incubator. And so she was also totally blind. So blindness was, um, we'll say, common uh, in in my mother's side of the family. And um, her parents, uh, her, her dad was confirmed alcoholic. Her mom was probably also a uh, German-Irish family. In, in, in uh, today's standards, they probably both would have been in jail and lost their kids to Child Protective Services because they were, they were a corporal family. And um, kids did what the kids did. Um, they were uh, made to uh, interact and be active. So um, my, my uncle, who was totally blind, was uh, taking himself down to Deep River in his teens and taking himself fishing um, by himself. I, was, I assumed that on occasion, at least, uh, maybe one or two of his brothers went with him, but he was an avid fisher person. And um, he, he went by himself from the house several blocks down to the river and came back home uh, did he even use a cane? I'm, I couldn't swear to it. I, I remember when he got his first guide dog. Um, I was probably six, somewhere around there. Um, both he and his sister um, went 150 miles away to school, to the Indiana School for the Blind. Um, and, and basically, I kind of followed a similar uh, similar path. Didn't have a river to walk to, per se, but um, there was a, a fairly large pond that we walked to on a regular basis. Um, and uh, I remember sneaking out the window of my bedroom at night and taking, taking myself fishing and, and uh, just making sure I got home before the parents woke up. Um, it, the blindness wasn't a factor except that um, it meant I went away to school when I was just shy of my sixth birthday. I also went to the Indiana School for the Blind. And um, it was, that was just the reality of it. Um, I didn't carry a cane until uh, I got ready to go to college. And... Um, was was all over my neighborhood. We rode, you know, we had a a two two wheel bike that my brother and sister and I shared. Their stepbrother and stepsister, uh, you know, we we shared it. I rode it um, almost as much as they did. Uh, by you myself. rode this. You rode this totally blind. The bicycle. Yes. That, yep. <laughs> wow, that's. Uh, I don't know if it. <laughs> that's impressive. I was, I was taught to to iron and vacuum. Uh, we were doing house chores uh, before our 10th birthdays. And uh, mom's idea was basically you, you help with the housework, you help with the yard chores. Uh, if you have any aspirations of sitting down to the dinner table. 
And that was just, you know, that was the, the nature of the family. And um, I, I made a, years later, I would make a Toastmasters speech. I was a member of Toastmasters International for about 10 years. Uh, I made a speech titled, Thanks Guys. And it was basically a, a thank you uh, soliloquy to my parents for uh, letting me be, um, well, well, I said letting, I should probably say making me be as, as independent as I could live through. Uh, climbing trees, I mentioned riding bicycles, uh, roller skating. Um, I, I was not, not only was I not encouraged, I was not allowed to sit in the bedroom and listen to the radio, uh, you know, which was what a lot of uh, blind kids did, the kids that I knew and interacted with at the School for the Blind. Um, you know, the, that, was not, uh, that was not allowed in, in our family. So, um, did you, I this lead, Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in, but just to, did any of these activities as a, as a kid, I mean, kids who are fully sighted when they climb trees and ride bikes and these things end up with injuries. I can imagine somebody with no sight that there must've been some um, stories there. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any stories and you want to touch on any of those before we dive into your, your, your chest life. Well, um, I learned what it feels like to be charging down the sidewalk, pushing a, you know, one of those little Tonka trucks, um, having the axle brake because I leaned too much weight on the truck and skidding on my elbows on the sidewalk. Um, uh, you know, raspberry, huge raspberries on elbows were commonplace. Um, running, running into a car had several chipped teeth because the car was harder than I was. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm not, I'm not, I can laugh just, now, right? Because it's, this is yeah. 60 years ago and you're, you're here to tell the story. I mean, obviously it wouldn't have been that funny at that time, but, but, you know, um, like I said before, kids are resilient and I, there's, there's a whole nother soapbox I could get on when we talk about the, the protectiveness of children these days. And I understand that it's a different world. Um, the, the risks from other two-footed uh, creatures is much greater now than it was when, when I was being a, a, um, you know, a kid in single digits and even into to, um, to my teens. But, um, you know, if, if, if I fell over something, fell off of something, um, if I was bleeding, yeah, we cleaned it up and put a Band-Aid on it. Um, you know, eggs on the forehead were just, they're commonplace. Part of the course. <laughs> you know, I, I, I freak people out now because I'll, I walk quickly. Um, maybe not as quickly as I did without, when I was in my 20s and 30s and whatnot, but I walk quickly. And I don't, I, I just, I've, I've never been one um, with one brief exception to, to you know, really feel my way around and move around tentatively. As a result, um, with wine glasses can be fairly short-lived in the house. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, my no, wife... you know, I've gone to I've gone to stainless steel wine glasses because I've just broken way oh. too many. 
and I, I got to stainless, uh, stainless yep. steel. And it's just like, you know what? It just I knock it over. All right. The wine is to clean up, but the, <laughs> the glass is still intact. There's not a thousand shards on the porcelain floor. So yeah. D- After 30 d- years d- of marriage, my wife still um, has not completely acclimated to the idea of not leaving half filled glasses of liquid on, you know, just anywhere on the counter or on the, that table um yeah it just uh that's 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 life and and oh, of course yeah. of course you know you brought yeah. up a couple of things there though i think that it's interesting like you you said uh um you know your your toastmaster's speech and and talking about how your parents had to make you do chores and otherwise you couldn't sit at the dinner table i mean nowadays i do the same thing with my kids they're eight nine and ten and uh, but it's otherwise they don't get their ipad time right their, their, their screen time but uh I remember reading something and I want to say it was like a, an ink magazine article or it might've been part of a Ted talk or maybe I'm combining two things into one here, but uh, there's two things that stand out. One was um, the kids who do chores when they're young um, as well as kids who you don't overprotect, let them fall off their bikes and get bumps and bruises. And I mean, I mean, wouldn't let them play in traffic, but you know, just those, the little bumps and bruises of life, um, that those two things were strongly correlated with uh, just uh, autonomy and success later on in life. And uh, um, maybe I'm botching some of that data, but those things, you know, what maybe, and maybe this, uh, these are things that um, ha- have helped you. But I wanted to maybe shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, fast forward a few years, because I think you're around age or 11, uh, around age 11, I think from our last conversation, you said when you got introduced to the the world of chess. So I thought maybe you could just tell that story a little bit. Uh, yes. Um, I'd have to say the love of my life. Um, and it was, it was the, my 11th Christmas. Um, I turned 11 in September. Um, Christmas came, uh, of course it was never soon enough, but, um, and under the tree, I found two large flat boxes, um, one of them contained a, uh, an adapted Scrabble board. Um, and Scrabble had been something that we had, had played already. And, you know, our family was, was we, we liked games in, uh, you know, for evening entertainment. We did watch some TV, uh, but we liked, we liked to play games, board games and whatnot. And Scrabble was one of our favorites. And, and up to that point, I had, had learned print uh, before I lost my vision. Um, and the, the, uh, etched letters on the Scrabble tiles, I, I could feel them and recognize them. So, um, that's how I knew what letters I had in my hand. And I just basically was trying to remember as best I could, what was on the, on the Scrabble board and I'd figure out my word and, and usually give the letters to my mom or whoever was handy to, to put them on the board without disarraying everything. Cause just standard board. Anyway, so one of them was Scrabble board, and the other one was this board, uh, looked like a, a checkerboard. I was familiar with checkers, adapted checkerboards, um, where the squares are indented, where the checkers go. Well, the Scrabble, the chessboard uh, turned out to be, and um, it looked very similar to that. Um, it was wood, had raised and lowered squares and, and an alternating pattern, just like a a checkerboard um, and this box full of all these fascinating shaped pieces. Um, 
and I make the, the detail because nobody in my family knew a thing about chess. Um, I have created a scenario uh, many years later um, to try to figure out how my parents happened to come up with a chessboard. Um, they would have had to order it special from uh, whatever, they were, I think it was American Printing House, American Foundation were the existing ones, Clovernook, those were the places where you got adapted uh, things, games, uh, mobility aids, etc. Um, back then, again, in the, it was 1961, um, but the, the, uh, the school, as it happened, that was in seventh grade, um, and the, the school had apparently been contacted by someone from the Indianapolis Chess Club who had volunteered to come out to the school and give chess lessons to kids who wanted them. So every Tuesday evening for well, it was probably an hour, hour and a half, something like that, he would show up and um, those of us interested would show up with our chess boards. Um, I speculate that maybe the school had contacted mom and mentioned a chess board as a possible Christmas present because this, this development was in the works. Um, I have no idea, but for whatever reason, they got me the chessboard, and it just happened coincidentally that that uh, through the the winter and spring that followed that that Christmas, um, a fellow named Norbert Matthews came out to the school, and um, and taught us to play. Um, he he actually took us to a a junior tournament. Um, I think it was at one of the, the schools in Indianapolis. So I actually played against um, a couple of my opponents were sided players. We, we wound up playing each other, the three of us uh, from the school who went to the tournament. So uh, one game I lost was to one of the, the other kid who, who was uh, from our school, uh, a fellow named Steven Spiker. Um, I lost to him. Uh, I beat Jimmy Ballard, who was the, the other kid uh, of, of the three of us who went to the school. And then um, I had wound up with, with uh, three wins and two losses overall. So um, the, the, uh, the other games, um, I had, you know, I, I beat a, a, a sided kid and, and lost to one. Um, so it was, it was, uh, that got me started and um it's been I've, I've played now tournament chess off and on um pretty much since then I, I played played my first adult tournament in what 1974 um yeah 73 or 74 and um have have played tournaments uh many mainstream tournaments and I played in the there's there's the one uh, national blind championship tournament that happens uh, each year, and um, I've played in probably I think maybe six or eight of those over the years. Um, actually, probably a couple more than that even. Well, you won three of them, right? I've won three. I have <laughs> yeah. three wins in two seconds. There you go. I guess the the main thing um, 
that I've gotten from that. I mean, if chess is an amazing game. Um, if you're going to study chess, you're going to learn about organizing and prioritizing. Um, you're going to learn about concentrating. Um, you are going to uh, develop either some some tactile dexterity. Uh, you, you know, the, the the board is is made so that the, each piece has a peg in the bottom, and each square has a hole hole drilled in the center, which um, on the better made sets fits uh, pretty snugly the the peg from each of the pieces. Um, so you can feel the board, feel the pieces. Um, you, you learn to recognize the relationship of the pieces. Um, you, you follow the diagonal lines and the straight lines of, of the squares. It's, a, it's a, an eight by eight board, eight squares wide, eight squares long. So 64 squares total. The black squares um, are raised. The white squares are lower. So you, you learn to, you know, by touch, recognize the, the difference, follow those diagonals. And you, you have to be fairly dexterous with your hands because even though the, the pieces fit uh, on, on the good sets uh, fairly snugly, um, you can still knock them over. And so you, you learn that dexterity. Um, the... It's, it's the, the chess is called the game of kings, and um, there are many stories that that tell about this emperor, that that king. Um, there's one recount that in World War II, apparently one of our generals was a chess player, and uh, because of that, he wound up gaining an ally from a, a, a tribe. I don't know if it was in the Philippines or. Uh, somewhere in the Pacific um, and actually gained an ally because, you know, the, of, of his relationship over the chessboard with, with uh, one of the leaders in the, wherever it was, he was, I'm not remembering the details. I apologize, but for a blind player also um, it really helps if you can learn to visualize the board to, um, to be able to view, if I can use that word, the position in your head without, um, without the benefit of a board. Um, many of the more highly skilled blind players uh, throughout the world do not, you know, they'll, they'll play and if they use a board at all, it, it might be just for some reference as they're reminding themselves of a, of a position or something, but they're doing, they're calculating, uh, they're analyzing in their heads uh, without, without feeling the board. Um, we actually have, have a tournament, um, at least one every year um, these days uh, using Skype where um, we are required to play without a board. You cannot have a board anywhere near in front of you. If, if you have one, you're disqualified. That must take, you know, an insane amount of concentration to, you know, like, I mean, chess is not exactly 
a game that moves along quickly unless you're playing against me, I guess. <laughs> it might be like a <laughs> three or four moves and, it moves and it's over. But, uh, but you know, when you're having skilled chess players playing against each other, and these could be quite long games, um, you know, it must take an immense amount of focus, concentration, and, you know, I don't know, the visual memory of some sort to remember positions on the board all the time? Like, is there something... I don't well, know. How do you train for that? I just, you, just, you just do well, it, I you, guess? The, the games are actually timed. So, um, and there are people, uh, anybody who was, you know, paying attention to the world of chess the last year, year before, um, the the world championship was, was happening. Um, a fellow named Magnus Carlsen uh, was from, I believe, Norway or Denmark, somewhere over in the Scandinavians. I uh, was playing against uh, an American, um, a guy named Caruana, um, and uh, they they drew all of their games, um, and they were playing with uh, probably probably uh, three minutes per move. Um, Basically, the, the way they the way it usually works is you're giving a set amount of time. For example, our, our blind national championship, you have two hours and 15 minutes on your clock and your opponent has two hours and 15 minutes on his clock or her clock. And um, you can take 20 minutes on a move if, if you're so inclined or you can make your move in five seconds if you're comfortable enough to do it. Um, but the the gamut of timing protocols, um, there there it's called blitz, and you play you have five minutes on your clock, and five minutes on your opponent's clock. So I mean the the <laughs> the noise of one of those games is kind of intriguing because you hear bang snap bang snap bang snap as as each player slams the, the piece down onto the board and smacks the clock to, to uh, stop his clock and start the opponent's clock. Um, the, the more sane uh, time controls, uh, the, the two time controls that we use most commonly, you have uh, 60 minutes to make uh, 30 moves and your opponent has has 60 minutes also and and when you complete your 30th move you get an additional hour added to your clock um and that continues to repeat if the game happens to go more than 60 uh 60 moves which they occasionally do um you, you'll get yet another hour um the other time control that we use a lot is you have an hour and 45 minutes to play the entire game each each player has an hour and 45 minutes on on their respective clock and just just to uh, to fill in a small gap, uh, if you've never seen a chess clock, it is a two-faced clock, um, and you you uh, there's a there is a button which will start or stop uh, the the time on on each clock. So uh, at no point are both clocks running at uh, at the same time um, when. Uh, the the player who is playing the white pieces moves first. Uh, the protocol that has lived uh, for the eight thousand years or thereabouts that that a game like chess has existed, um, and uh, so when it's the game is ready to start, the player of the black pieces presses the button that starts white's clock. 
as soon as the player of the white pieces makes his or her move, um, then uh, he or she presses the button that stops uh, that clock and starts uh, the other player's clock. So um, you, you can, I mean, you can finish a game um, in fairly short order. Uh, can We usually figure a game is going to take two hours anyway. Um, so yeah, that's, that is intense concentration, um, for, for that amount of, you know, for the time that you're playing. Um, one famous story back in, in the early seventies, 1972, the whole world went crazy on chess because, uh, there was this American named Bobby Fisher, who was just this incredibly brilliant chess player. The, the Soviets had dominated the, the chess world for decades. Uh, the current world champion was a fellow named Boris Spassky. And uh, Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky were going to play their, their uh, world championship match. And they would play the, the first player to, to earn 12 points. You get a, a one point for a win, a half a point if the game is drawn. Uh, nobody wins, nobody loses. Of course, you don't get any points if you lose. Um, during that match, when went on for oh, a good couple weeks, um, it was reported that Boris Spassky actually lost 40 pounds during that chess match. Um, well, Bobby Fischer caused him a lot of stress, if, I don't, if, I, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Didn't he, like, you know, show up late and, like, forfeit games and stuff like this just to get get inside his psyche and drive this guy crazy. They said that, that the yep. same story. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a mental game too. Right. And, and it was pure, <laughs> it was, it was all out mental warfare that was happening there. Right. So, um, no, I think it's, uh, that's now, can you just elaborate a little bit on, like you're talking about the, the clocks, uh, and you talk about the boards a little bit, but, Am I mistaken, or is it normally when you're playing as a as a blind chess competitor, you each player has their own board, and how does that how does that work? That's right. Yeah. Um, when I go to a go to a tournament, of course, when we're playing on Skype, um, but just almost almost any scenario, uh, unless you're just sitting casually with a neighbor playing playing a game of chess, and sometimes even then, um, each player uses a separate board. Uh, one reason for that is in the in the mainstream world, um, if you touch a piece, you move it, and you're allowed one move uh, at each turn. So you you can't make a move and then make another move because you touch another piece. Um, but basically, a, a sided player, and and uh, you, so you have to be a little bit careful because you know the, I mean, the boards are not huge. They're, they've generally, they're somewhere between eight and 13 or 14 inches on a side. Um, so, you know, you kind of extrapolate from that how big each square is and the pieces uh, generally are, are maybe four inches tall or less. Um, so, you know, you, you have to be a little bit coordinated to make sure you touch the right piece. Otherwise, you touch the wrong piece. You have to move it, whether it's a good move. Uh, as long as it's a legal move, you have to you have to find a legal move to, to make with that touched piece. Well, uh, for a blind player, that would pose some uh, some 
uh, slant to the playing field. Um, so uh, the, the, the rule is if you uh, willfully remove a piece from the square, it is considered touched and you have to, if, if there is a legal move that you can make with that piece, you, you, if there are more than one, you can choose the, the one you want to make, but you have to make a move with the piece that you've taken off the chessboard. And, and um, so uh, going back to the dexterity, uh, to the ability to uh, be fairly light-fingered, touching the, the board. Um, I was playing a game one time with a fellow who was, who was rated above me, and I had him in what's called a mating net, uh, meaning that each move I was was uh, forcing him to move his king um, or or block because uh, when you when you make a move and you put the other the other guy in it's called in check, meaning you're attacking his king. He has to uh, first and foremost must get his king out of check. Um, if he can't do it, the game is over and he's lost. So uh, I have this mating net, and I'm almost out of time. Um, I just, I'm literally down to a minute left on my clock, and I had probably you know eight, ten, twelve moves or so that I had to make. So I'm moving as quickly as I can, and there's one point where I could, if I moved the, if if I moved my queen to to a particular square, he would not be in check but he wouldn't have a legal move on the board. And that would be a draw. And I'm, I'm, this is a game that I've just, it, it was a one game. Um, I just had to complete the moves to, to, uh, to checkmate him. Well, um, I had already taken my queen uh, off the square and as I was almost placing it on the square, that would have given, we would have created the stalemate. He would not have had a legal move on the board, but he would not have been in check. Um, and I just let the queen flat on my hand and it went to, after one of the fellows who was watching the game got up and went over and picked it up off the floor and brought it back. And it gave me that, that, you know, few seconds of time to, to um, catch my, my, mistake and and to i had picked had taken the queen off the board so i had to move her um but there, there was the right move and then there was the wrong move and and it's, this gave me the the opportunity to refocus to to get the right square because once once you make the move you can't take it back um there's protocol when we when we're playing on on skype since uh, you know you're not in the same room, uh, you you, uh, you say the move, and I do this um, when I'm playing in a tournament as well, a mainstream tournament uh, across the table from my opponent. Um, I I say the move, I move it on my board, and then I I hit his clock. Um, he makes his move. And the the protocol is he makes his move. He, he says it out loud so I know what the move is. And then um, he presses uh, his, he presses the, the clock to start my time. So um, you're speaking the moves back and forth and that's how we communicate the moves. Um, what does that look like? What is like, what do you say when you, I guess I don't know the, the 
terminology on a chessboard for when you're speaking the move? The, the, current, uh, the current method, it's called the algebraic system, has nothing to do with algebra at all. Um, although one of my students was so upset by the fact that it was called the algebraic system, she declined to even bother to, to deal with it. But anyway, um, it, it's the algebraic system. Each square has a letter and a number associated with it. And I mentioned the board was eight, eight squares wide. So uh, the, the row of squares, each row of squares leading from uh, say the white side of the board to, to black's side of the board um, is, is lettered. So you have the A, the B, the C, the D, the E, the F, the, H, the G, and the H files. And then each row, again, starting from the white side of the board is numbered. So uh, the, the square on the left-hand side of the board on the very first row nearest uh, to, to the, the white side of the board, that square is A1. So um, basically, so each of the 64 squares has a unique uh, address, we'll call it. Um, there's only one board on the square, which is A1. There's only one board on the square, which is H8. And uh, there they are, uh, if you can picture it, on uh, opposing uh, diagonally across the board from White's lower left hand, from White's perspective, uh, the player of the black pieces is sitting opposite. Uh, you're facing each other. So uh, his left hand is my right hand if I'm on the white side. Uh, my left hand is his, his right hand. And any blind player, any blind person who has received directions from, from a sighted person has dealt with this, this concept. Okay, so, you know, uh, Somebody is giving you direction and they're facing you and they tell you to turn right and it's actually your left. So um, this, this is not something that's, that's new uh, to do blind players. Um, but, but so anyway, the, the, you know, the, each square is labeled. So um, I'm moving my knight, let's say, and uh, it's, it's going to the square labeled F3. Um, and especially when we're playing using Skype, uh, just because it, the language may be a barrier or the connection may be not entirely clear, um, we use the alliterations, uh, either the military or the European. So it'll sound like Knight to Felix 3 or Knight to Foxtrot 3. And both players understand precisely which knight is being moved and the square that is being moved to. And it can happen, certain of the pieces, um, either of your two knights, either of your two rooks could possibly uh, move to the same square. Um, and so we just, we did, uh, we distinguish um, knight from Bravo to Delta two. And that makes sense to at least to another chess player. No, it's, I mean, makes, I guess, it, I mean, that logically makes sense to me. Trying to keep a mental map of everything uh, sounds like it might be challenging, <laughs> but uh, um, I was wondering if you could just, just briefly comment on, you mentioned Skype, you mentioned coaching. Um, you are a coach as well as a player. 
Um, can I you am. maybe just discuss how technology has, I guess, changed the game of chess for um, blind or vision impaired players, um, either in the playing side or the coaching side, uh, et cetera? Sure. Um, you know, I mentioned that I started playing competitively back in, in the early 70s. And there is this organization in the United States called the United States uh, Blind Chess Association. It used to be the United States Braille Chess Association. And some people took exception when we changed it from Braille to blind. But um, all too often, I was having new students uh, who are blind telling me that they would like to learn chess, but they didn't know Braille. And um, in point of actual fact, you do not need to know Braille to play chess. Um, so uh, we decided that it just made more sense to, to uh, change it from U.S. Blind, I'm sorry, from U.S. Braille to U.S. Blind Chess Association. So um, we, and we had organized tournaments that, that we would play each other by mail. Um, the U.S. Chess Federation, which is the mainstream national organization, uh, has a correspondence uh, segment. Uh, generally, it's called the Golden Knights. And so uh, sighted people play correspondence chess as well, mailing their moves back and forth. In those days, this is pre-internet. Um, and in fact, it was pre-PC. Uh, we sent brailled postcards to each other or if we didn't weren't braille users we sent tape recordings uh, cassettes back and forth to each other uh, with our moves so you can imagine um, it could be three or four days you'd, you'd make your move write it on a card or um, record it on a tape send it off to your opponent he gets it three four five six days later makes his move uh, hopefully fairly you know, promptly sends it back so it could be a week or more between uh, times making a move. Um, in the in the in each correspondence tournament that uh, was going on, the tournament was scheduled to last for two years, and you might have 20, 25 players. So you're playing a game against each one of those players, and you're you're um, maintaining a card file of all of the moves from each of those each of those players. Um, if your organization skills were good, you had a, a separate little slot for each player and you kept all his cards in, in, that, in that slot. So, because um, unless you had 20 or 25 chess boards and the room to set them all up and leave them set up, it meant that you uh, set up the board for a particular game, made the moves up to the, the current point, made your move, wrote it down, sent it off in the mail, and then grabbed the next envelope and reset the board to that for that game. That was in 1970s, 1980s, even into the 1990s. Um, and then email came along. Um, and uh, an email game now will generally last maybe a month, um, maybe a little more, sometimes less, depending on, on how quickly each player moves. Um, I'm, I'm in it. We, the USBCA runs a correspondence tournament every year. Um, each month you start your, your uh, subsequent round 
uh, your subsequent game against uh, another player. You play one player at a time. You may have a game still going on before when the next one starts, but um, that just means you have to do a similar kind of drill like I, like I described. But basically, you have maybe 24 hours to get your move uh, emailed over to your opponent, and you go by the timestamp of the move. Um, and then there's Skype. Um, Skype allows you to basically make a, a voice connection similar to Zoom um, with or without video. And um, to most anywhere in the world, if they have internet and Skype capability, um, since, since 2014, when I retired uh, from my, my uh, real job and uh, got back into playing chess very act actively, um, since that time, I have played chess, and I, I believe the count is somewhere around 25, 26 uh, different countries. Um, and uh, I have, have uh, trained myself. I can now play a game of chess in German, French, and Spanish. Um, and I'm getting there with Italian. Um, so that's impressive uh, it's, <laughs> that's, and, and it, it's you know it, it's it has introduced me to obviously I'm, I'm talking to these people sometimes you know it, it's the only communication is you know have a good game and you make the moves and you know yeah you played well uh, uh, you know thanks for a good game um but oftentimes um there's a lot more communication than that. So I've gotten to know fairly well uh, people in a host of different countries. And in fact, in 2018, um, one of the high points of my, my career was I got, I, my wife and I uh, went to France, went to Bordeaux, France, and I played in the French Blind National Championship. I placed ninth overall, but I, I won the, the uh, the title of best unrated because it was my first uh, what we call FIDE, F-I-D-E. Um, that is the, I mentioned there was the U.S. Chess Federation. That's the, the United States uh, mainstream chess uh, governing body. The, I forgot what F-I-D-E stands for, but it is the worldwide governing, uh, governing body of chess, not just for blind, but for everybody. Probably like uh, Federation Internationale de something. Mm -hmm. Aveugle would be blind in French. I speak French also. Internationale de something, uh, AHX yeah, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Interesting. No, that's, that's interesting. Um, I don't want to take all of your time, but I do want to touch on one other topic here, uh, which brings us far away from chess um, and underwater. <laughs> I think you also have another claim to fame, and maybe you can. Uh, um, discuss that a little bit and how that came to be. That, and I'm, I'm going to take a liberty here because um, the other question I know we're going to touch on is is my calling, and and so um, yes, um, underwater uh, scuba diving. I am, uh, to the best of my knowledge, and I have done a fair bit of checking. To my knowledge, I am the first totally blind person in the United States, where I was at that time, uh, to be certified as a scuba diver. Um, I was 
trained by uh, the sons of the photographer, one of the photographers who actually um, traveled with Jacques Cousteau, uh, name most people recognize, whether they know much else about uh, oceans and diving and what have you. Um, but uh, uh, Jim Stewart's uh, sons, Flip and Terry, I'm um, sorry, Jim Nicklin's sons, <laughs> Jim Stewart's favorite actor, anyway. Um, Jim Nicklin's sons, Flip and Terry, owned a, a dive shop in San Diego where I had gone for graduate school. Um, and um, thanks to the, the phys ed director at uh, University of California, San Diego campus, where I was a, a grad student, um, he introduced me to skin diving and um, introduced me to uh, Flip and Terry Nickland, um, and and um, you know, Sea Hunt was one of my favorite TV shows when I was uh, of that age back in the late fifties, early sixties. Um, it was hard to follow because so much was done underwater, and of course, there's no dialogue going on then. But uh, just the, the sound of his breathing underwater and the bubbles from his air tank and and it, it just I'm a, I'm living in Indiana. I'm a thousand miles and more from the nearest saltwater, but I fell in love with the ocean. And um, when grad school came and I got to, to move to go to San Diego and, and live there, wound up living there for seven years. Um, and 1973, I was certified as a scuba diver, um, first totally blind. And um, it was just one in a series of, um, I've, I've lived my life um, and, and the, the, my primary intent has been to make people see me not as a blind man, but as a man who, among other things, happens to be blind. And most sighted people that I meet, uh, and so many of the blind people that I meet, the, the overriding dominant descriptor that, that they think of for themselves and for the sighted person who sees me is blind. And, and it... it frequently takes work to get them to see anything else. Um, I've run into it in chess, uh, living in, in Seattle when I was, I lived up in Seattle in the early eighties and played a lot of tournaments. And if I happened to win a game at a tournament, um, more than once I heard the, the tournament director make a comment, well, George, I guess you saw more than you did, didn't he? And, that's, I don't know if I should laugh or not at that, right? Like, it's yeah, a, it, yeah, it, you know, it, but it, it, so it's, it's been my, uh, that's been my goal is to make people see me as, as, as a man who happens to be, among other things, blind. Yep. You know, also, yeah, it leads to into your calling a little bit, right? Like, we were trying yeah. to talk about your, your calling. Right. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that a little bit, because it doesn't just apply, like, my impression from, you know, our earlier conversation a few weeks back is that you know this mindset doesn't just apply to you that how you want others uh, you know generally speaking to be looking at you know people who are blind that you know they happen to be blind but they might also happen to be 
uh, a man or a woman or large or skinny or whatever else. I mean, it is an attribute, but it is not the defining attribute of their entire being, right? That's that's right. And one of the things I, uh, in, in going through school, uh, the first half of elementary school, I went to the Indiana School for the Blind. But as I mentioned, I was 150 miles away from home. I had my sixth birthday in Indianapolis. My parents lived up in the in the uh, northwest corner of the state. Um, and and so uh, as I was, uh, oh, one, one, at least one six weeks period, one grading period into fourth grade, um, they engineered a switch and transferred me to, um, it was a Catholic school for fourth grade and then a public school for fifth and sixth grades um, so that I could be at home going to school. Um, seventh grade, uh, it's worth mentioning that at that time, and again, it was 19, 1961, um, the school, basically the, the, the Portage Junior High school principal said, you know, yeah, I could go to the school, but it wouldn't be, uh, he didn't think it would be safe for me to take part in any of the extracurriculars. Um, so uh, we talked about it and decided that my uncle had, had uh, been on the wrestling team. Uh, both of both my aunt and uncle had been in the, in the band um, decided that it was time to go back to the Indiana school for the blind. Um, I wrestled uh, five of the six years um, was, was in the band, in the chorus for well, one year anyway, for the chorus. I wasn't a great singer. Um, which is, which is better really at kind of throwing a, people around on a mat then, right? So. Yeah. But, but you know, if you're blind, you're supposed to be really good in music. Um, that's just one of those things, you know, blind people have, have this, this innate ability with music. Uh, we're also very insightful. Um, you know, and uh, anyway, never mind that. I didn't get uh, the musical talents, Jim. I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest with you. The, uh, <laughs> they throwing people around on a mat. Maybe I did a little bit of that before. So uh, I don't know if you know, but the, um, so Bruno Fernandez, who usually co-hosts these episodes with me, who is an ophthalmologist. And we talked earlier that uh, he wouldn't be able to join us, unfortunately today, mm-hmm. but uh, so he's an ophthalmologist by training. He also is a world champion in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and mm-hmm. runs a series of uh, schools and, um, I trained at his gym for a little while, um, and being visually impaired, it didn't, uh, you know, it didn't give me, I was on the level playing field as everybody else, because in that sport, uh, you know, wrestling as well, but probably jujitsu, probably even more, you're in contact with your opponent. Uh, and it's a lot of just proprioception. You can almost close your eyes and still, still fight once you've got a hold of somebody. Right. So, yeah. um, so yeah, I had some of those skills too with you, uh, you know, probably similar to you, but uh, the idea of music, unfortunately, uh, I got the short end of the genetic lottery there as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, you know, later on, um, this would have been, let me see, I was in New York at the time. I was in New York from 82 to 87. Um, and for three of those years, I was lead instructor for a, a pilot program. We were trying to, uh, incorporate this newfangled creation called a personal computer. Um, we were trying to find the ways that that computer was going to help break down the print barrier and could be used as, as a vehicle by which uh, blind uh, people could enter into the job market. Um, one of my students, a young, a young lady named Kathy, 
um, also totally blind. And uh, she, she had another and probably even more challenging uh, attribute. And that was, she was, uh, I believe she was like four feet, eight inches tall. Um, so she, she uh, was, was challenged trying to reach things that, you know, many, many people take for granted. But anyway, um, she decided uh, because of my, my stories um, to get herself certified as a scuba diver, and she did it. Um, I've I've not been in touch with her for well, basically, pretty much since she she completed the courses I was teaching. But um, that was that to me um, figured into what you know what what I feel like is my calling, and and the other part of that is um, in 1973, when I started playing tournaments, the reason I started playing tournaments was um, my contact with a fellow that I had met at, at the chess club there in, in uh, San Diego. And he took me under his wing. He was a rated expert chess player. He took me under his wing. He started reading things on the tape for me. Um, I was still too young and stupid to know about about real effective studying. Um, I thought I could study an opening just simply by playing it a couple times. Um, uh, I've, I've finally begun to learn that 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 is not the case. Uh, but he he gave uh, he touched my life in, in many, many ways. Don Philly, if, if uh, I'd love it if he should ever happen to, to come across this because I've lost track of him. Um, I'd love, he's getting close to 80. I'd love to talk to him again. But anyway, he was my mentor in chess for, uh, the time that I was in San Diego and, um, being able to play tournament chess. And since, since I've retired and being able to, to actually pay that forward, um, to, to other blind players, um, the, the players that I coach typically are the, the brand new players. Um, they're still struggling to get their feet under them, um, so to speak, uh, with respect to, to playing the game. And um, it's, it's something that I would, I would do. Well, in fact, I've <laughs> battled, I, I battled my wife's uh, plans for my time. Um, uh, I, I got the opportunity to actually teach chess for uh, Hadley Institute uh, for three years, and then they they disbanded their their chess program. Um, so I've I've continued my uh, coaching. I, I run something. Uh, I try to get there every Saturday. There I've missed a lot of Saturdays certainly through this summer, but every Saturday morning on Skype um, I have a, a two hour gathering called Chess Gather. And um, any any player, blind or sight, as far as that goes, who wants to to sit in, and we will talk over a game. We'll play through a game that somebody has played, um, and I try to put into layman's terms uh, the the uh, the things that I've been able to gather about um, you know, how to how to try to play a a well planned, uh, well organized, well executed game. And um, 
so being able to pay that forward um, to teach others to to play chess, um, hopefully maybe to to uh, well, one young man right now he's thirteen uh, in San Diego as a matter of fact uh, just coincidentally, but I think he's I think he's been thoroughly bitten uh, by the bug and. Um, I, I feel fairly confident that there's a good chance that that he will be uh, a presence in the chess world uh, you know, for the next, well, hopefully 60, 70, 80 years, 90, um, say he's 13. So, uh, and I, I, I was instrumental at getting a 10-year-old from, from uh, the Southeast in Florida uh, to come to our national tournament, this would have been in 2019, um, the, the youngest player ever to attend the U.S. Blind National Championship. Um, and and uh, so that was, uh, it's, it's things like this, especially where I, I can get a young person interested in and, and actively playing, um, willing to go to, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to a mainstream tournament. Um, Skype, Skype allows blind players now to play a lot of chess any time of the day or night uh, against whoever they want to. Uh, and, and many of them play a lot mostly with blind, other blind players. Um, but there are also uh, websites out there where you can compete with just anybody. And um, nobody will know if you're blind or, or sighted or what, um, because you're, you're, you're connecting through a computer interface. Um, just you, you type your move on the keyboard and hit enter, and uh, that shows up on your opponent's screen, and, and he or she does the same. So you could be playing against somebody who's six or eighty-nine, um, male or female, uh, in on any of the the well, probably six of the seven continents. I don't know if there are any chess players on Antarctica, but there could be. Um, few more years of global warming there probably will be <laughs> well, we're all going to be starting to set up shop eh? so yeah. I, th you know, I think it's wonderful how you you know you've really paid it forward like you said and and encouraging uh young people and just getting into coaching in general and stuff so um it might be a you know a good point to um to wrap up here i'm, I'm sure there's a lot more stories and stuff we can dive into and maybe we can you know circle back uh and come back for another episode in the future but if there's any uh, do you have any, you know, parting words of wisdom for any, uh, you know, young people or, or maybe, you know, dealing with visual impairments or parents of um, kids uh, that might be, you know, dealing with visual impairments or even adults um, in terms of uh, whether it's chess, whether it's, you know, life advice, uh, um, et cetera. And if you had to kind of sum those up in some parting words, what would you want to say? I would, for, for parents of a blind child, absolutely, I would say, please swallow your fears for your child. Let them run. Because if you don't, it will cripple them later in ways you can't even imagine. And for the, for the, the uh, blind, visually impaired, the people who are dealing with losing vision, um, the people who've already lost it, um, 
recognize that when you you interact with somebody, they're going to want to do for you, or they're going to want to avoid you. Because there is an incredible fear of blindness out there. And there is an incredible level of non-understanding, even ignorance, with respect to how blindness affects your life. And people don't believe me when I say I'm actually relatively glad that I lost my vision when I did. Because uh, if I hadn't, I have no idea what my life track would have been. Um, maybe I'd have wound up playing Major League Baseball. I, know I love baseball. Maybe I would have been in the military. Maybe I would have been buried in Vietnam. Maybe, who knows? But because of the track that the good Lord put me on back when I was five years old, and because of the fact that my parents were not, well, if they were terrified, they swallowed it. And they let me run, they let me climb, they let me fall. And were there when I needed them, or to look after bruises, or to give me some encouragement, uh, to make sure that I enrolled in college and was the first person in either side of the family to attend college. Um, just let them um, and, and recognize that when people see you, chances are they're going to see the blind first. It's up to you to make sure that they see the person uh, ultimately. And, and if you can do that, then you can contribute, whether it's directly or not, you can contribute to making life better for other blind people coming along afterward. And that, that's what I hope I have done and will continue to do while I'm able. And, and um, I, I just appreciate the fact that um, things have, have collided uh, so that I was able to be here today and have, have Sean uh, to, to interview and to, to help me get, get the word out. Well, listen, Jim, this is my pleasure, truly. They, you know, um, I've talked to you before about the impetus behind the podcast. And really, that is, you know, just to do this, to showcase, uh, you know, research, um, talk to doctors, um, you know, ordinary people have done extraordinary things. And you're certainly, uh, you know, among that, uh, that group, although I think you might have some extraordinary abilities when talking about these memories from, from your really early childhood and the ability to, to, uh, you know, memorize chess boards, uh, positions for you know, hours on end and stuff. So there's probably some extraordinary abilities there, but, uh, or ordinary abilities that have been honed over time. But I think that, uh, you know, just showcasing, um, your life and your, your stories and accomplishments, uh, not just in chess, uh, but in, you know, in scuba diving, um, and elsewhere, I think that, you know, that alone is going to just have people who are listening to this, hopefully, understand that even these things are possible because I'm going to be honest, but you know, uh, when Bruno said, Hey, we have, we have uh, you know, us blind chess champion. They're going to be in the podcast. I'm like a blind chess champion. I'm like, how does that even work? So, you know, I was amazed, but you know, talking to you, I'm like, okay, it's like this, uh, this makes sense how, how someone can do this. So it's, uh, 
um, I think just getting the, getting the word out and, and can help break down those, uh, those mental barriers for people who are sighted or visually impaired alike. Right. So I want to, you know, thank you for, for joining us today and, and you know, sharing your, uh, your stories. One, one last thing, if I may. Of course. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I was able to win the, the tournament the three times that I won it. Um, I stress that I'm not the best blind player in the country by a long shot, but I was the best who showed up. And those last three words, I think, are, are words that I would love to have people blindsided or otherwise incorporate deeply into their own uh what we call the Velton Chowan, the world's perspective, their, their life view. Because if you don't play, you can't win. And if you don't show up, you're not going to have any impact. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, so, a lot of people are so afraid of losing that can just never, I mean, in anything in life, they're so afraid of losing that they just don't even play, right? So, uh, no, I think that's uh, definitely some, some good, uh, some sage advice. So, Jim, thanks for. Uh, thanks for doing this today. It's certainly been a pleasure. I feel like you and I could sit and talk for hours on end and uh, maybe at uh, some point in time we could, you know, do a round two in person. And if not, I'd still love to meet you face to face and, you know, uh, over a coffee and, uh, you know, and, and carry on a conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, who knows what it'll bring, but uh, I plan to be here until I'm at least 140 or 150. So, I wouldn't put it off, you know, but, but uh, when I say we have time, it tends to mean you put it off, but yeah. Um, anytime. Excellent. Any, anytime. Thanks Jim so much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.